Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. I hope you're enjoying Luck on Sunday. I hope you're not too exhausted and you've been enriched by the variety of guests that we've had. I, I don't think I'd be offending anyone by saying we have saved the best until last. He is a man who has achieved extraordinary things in horse racing, both sides of the Atlantic. He had a, a successful riding career until 1980 when he took over his parents' training base from where he sent out the first five home in the Gold Cup in 1983. Dual Gold Cup winning trainer. Many other great races as well, including several editions of the King George VI steeplechase. After a brief period training uh, at Mountain for Robert Sangster, he relocated to the United States where he instantly became a grade one winning trainer several times over. His most famous accomplishment in the United States was to get the injured de Hoss back to the track to win a second Breeders' Cup mile two years after his first. Subsequent to which, if that wasn't enough, he decided to climb another mountain, and that was to try and revolutionise the way in which horses are trained and the surface on which they run. He is none other than Michael Dickinson. Michael, good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat. Not at all, and it is great to see you here, and I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, seeing you before the program with Henrietta Knight and David Sykes, good old friends of yours as well, and just your enthusiasm, your relentless enthusiasm for every aspect of the game is quite infectious. I often ask trainers, people are practitioners in the game, do you ever get bored? You clearly never get bored. No, no, I love horses, love racing. So, yes, it's my life. It has been your life right from the outset. Um, when you were riding horses for your, for your parents, when they were training very successfully, it strikes me that there was almost a happy-go-lucky quality to, to, to the game relative yeah. to what it is now. Yes, we hear all the time now about the jockeys at Cheltenham. There's so much pressure on them coming to Cheltenham because Cheltenham's so big and powerful now. They've got to have a winner and they're under pressure. Well, I was never under that pressure because we were, at the time, just farmers from Yorkshire with its fox hunting and point-to-points. So just to have a runner with a sort of 10 to 1 chance at Cheltenham was fantastic. So when I walked in the racetrack at Cheltenham, I already felt a winner. Mm. I felt no pressure to win. We weren't expected to win at Cheltenham. So I used to just go out and enjoy myself. So that was terrific to be in that position. And do you think that was redolent of the whole atmosphere around national hunt racing then? Was um, it a, a rather more relaxed scene, well, it, do you it, think? It, uh, it, yes, I mean, Cheltenham's got bigger since then but uh, no it was always the number one and we always wanted to do it so it was for me just to have a runner so I really enjoyed it and you you never miss it do you you're always back there for Cheltenham every yes year. yes we go yes and uh, now I've uh, I'm a self-appointed ambassador and I invite people from outside racing and bring them racing mm. so two years ago we bought Carol Borderman and Richard Mindy Hammond and now they've bought a horse in training with Tim Bailey that's good. This year we've got quite a few. We've got the, uh, the head of NASA coming. Have you? Yes. And we've got... Uh, how, dare I ask, how do, you, how do you go about becoming friends with the head of NASA? Where did, where did that come from? Uh, well, she's been to stay at the farm. Uh -huh. um, she's the head of the, uh, um, the NASA base near Washington, D.C. Right. So she comes up and we took a fox hunting because she rides horses. She likes horses. She's a big friend of Carol Boardman, so Carol bought her. But she's great. So she's the head of NASA, NASA yes. Washington. Of course, your base is in, in Maryland, so, so not too far away. Uh, just tell me, when, when you transitioned from, from being a rider to training, to taking over the, the training of the horses, was it immediately obvious to you that you could, you could make a breakthrough? You could take a step forward as regards no. conditioning horses no. or not? Or no, did, it, no. did it just no. happen? No. Um, my father very kindly retired when he was quite young and gave me the chance. And the first year, we didn't do very well. We messed it up. 
So I sat down with Brian Powell, our head man, who's now at Godolphin, and I said, well, we've got to do better. So we, we started training them differently. So it was Brian and I, perhaps, to, to get them fitter. What happened? I was out for dinner with Michael Stout uh, during the Commonwealth Games when they were breaking all the records. So Stouty said to me, wouldn't that be great to know how they break all these records? Uh. So I said, well, let's do it. So I arranged some meetings with the head coach and the head doctor from the British Olympic team, and also with uh, Stan Long, who was the coach for Brendan Foster. Mm -hmm. So we had about 10 lessons together. Stouty came up from Newmarket and went to visit them all. And that year I won the Cheltenham Gold Cup, and Stouty won the derby with Shergar. This was 81. 81, that's when we started, yes. So my first season wasn't very good, and uh, second season was a bit better. And this is because you had engaged people who were experts in athletic performance yes, to come and yes, help you. So yes. what was it that they were telling you to do? Uh, that just you more, then put in just practice? Uh, more work, yes. Um, I think that we, they did a canter for about five furlongs, and Stan Long came down, he, you know, we invited him down. He said, well, we haven't taken our tracksuits off yet. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought that was quite a quite a, enough training, you know. But you'd been steeped in your family had been steeped in the training of resources yes, for, yes. for so many years. You must have thought oh, we know exactly how to to do this. Well, how frightened were you of pushing these horses further than uh, further than you thought was 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 realistically oh, possible? Well, my dad did. Yeah, I bet. Yes, he came into when we started doing, and uh, if it hadn't been for Brian, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it. But he came into my office, closed the door behind him, stuck behind the door so I couldn't get out. You've got to stop. This isn't going to work. You've got to stop. So I said, please, Dad, let me go on. And he did. He was great. But uh, not after a, a discussion or two. And the impact was, was pretty extraordinary. What sort of reaction do you think you got from your contemporaries, your peers, other trainers at the time to the success that you were having? You'll have to ask them that. There was a degree of, there was a degree of envy, I would imagine, that well, you'd gone from. So. Yes, yep. And but we had some good horses, and we had, had some, some good staff. You had some brilliant horses. And we only had 55 stables, and we had 17 boys, and they'd all ridden winners. So we had a great team, so we had a lot of help. There was well, a lot of things. How, how was that possible then? Because you, you listen to trainers now, and they say, I can't get the staff, I can't get the riders to come in and school. The idea of having that many jockeys who'd had a license and ridden winners to yes. ride for you on a daily basis when you only had 55 horses, it sounds like training utopia, and you could make a living. Uh, well, we couldn't really make a living. We didn't make any money training. Even that year when we had the first five and we won three races at Cheltenham, we didn't make any money. But we had some good boys, and it was very rewarding to see them. Earnshaw joined me from school, and Bradley just joined me for one year after school. So they both went on to win the Gold Cup. But we had a good team. Who was the best jockey you rode for you? Oh, they're all good. So that's a leading question. That. It's not a leading question. It's no, just a question. All, it's a, it might be a horrible question, but no, it's a, no, they're, they're all good. Yes, had some good boys. Um, when you had the first five home in the in the Gold Cup, it must have been a an extraordinary but bizarre day for you to experience. Yes, it wasn't. I wasn't happy. Um, I'd been under a lot of pressure for a long time. At Christmas, they were all in really good shape. All the horses, everything. We had twelve winners on Boxing Day. We only had 20 runners, mm. and they were all in the first three bar one. Mm -hmm. So everything was going well. And then the next day, we had four runners, and they all ran terrible. So we went down. So from uh, January and February, nothing went right. And I said to Brian in the middle of February, I said, 
Brian, and said, last year we were first and second in the Gold Cup, and this year we're not going to have a runner. That was how it was in February. And now we just managed to get them all right in the time. It wasn't enjoyable for me because Silverbuck and Wayward Lad were the two best horses there, but they weren't at their best. So I hated doing that, running them, when I knew they weren't at their best. Um, I'm not proud of that now. But, um, so if you, you know, had, if you had your time again, you wouldn't, wouldn't have run them? No, I probably would have done, but you, you don't like doing it. You know, when you know they're not at their best, but Wayward Lad rather... They were sound and they were healthy, but Wayward Lad was third and Silverbuck was fourth, so they can't have been that bad. But it was a worry to me. Was Wayward Lad the most talented horse you trained? No, that's a boy. By a long way. Three Queen Mother champion chases. Yes, but his first year he won by 35 lengths. The horses that won 102 races um, beat two previous winners of the race. And was he a horse that when you, when you worked him, when you did anything with him at home, was far in advance of all the other talented horses in your string? Was he the clear star, the clear standard? No, 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 not, no, not, not really. This is him winning his third his Queen third, Mother Championship yes. well, in 1984. He was, I think my mother trained him this year, didn't she? It's probably my mother. What was it that set him apart, Michael? Oh, he had a lot of speed and he was very fast over his fences. Robert Earnshaw was as good a rider as has ever been over a fence. He's not the best jockey in the world, but he was brilliant. He used to go in lengths in the air. So he was... And he was the best horse you trained? Yes, definitely, yes. Uh, do you think How often do you win a championship race by 35 lengths? Do you think he's the best two-miler there's ever been? Because there was the pole in the race yes, in first no, the week. Yes, no, Flying Bolt was the best. He was yeah. the second best. Now, I know... Um, what's the horse that won the, race, that won the competition? Uh, did Sprinter Sacre come yes, out? Sprinter one Sacre, in the yes, Sprinter Sacre, yes. Well, he was a very good horse. But he only won two champion two-mile chases. He only won by 19 lengths. Why it, A, he won? Because it was recent and because it was very emotional. Because mm. for two years... One year he didn't show up, mm. and the other year he was fourth. So it was a brilliant training job by Nicky. So it was more the emotion, because there's a guy who lost his crown and won it back again. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, you know, in... No, I think that the time he won his first champion chase, he was up there. Yes, he was with, up there, yes. With, with Badsworth Boy and Flying Bolt, but, but I mean, not the same. But, I mean, you know, time. two years he was missing in action. Now, I know that uh, you are much prouder of other achievements than, than the first five home in the Gold Cup. Why, why does De Hoss winning his second Breeders' Cup mile mean so much more to you than everything you achieved <coughs> under National Hunt? Because uh, we were certain he was going to win before the race. Um, I had a really good team, Miguel Piedra and Joan Wakefield and John Boy Faraday. John Boy used to ride his work, to get his work within a fifth of a second in a minute's work. He was very good. But we knew we had him spot on. And I went to see Johnny Velasquez in the morning of the race. And I said, I know you've got six rides today, but you're going to have one winner. And I was almost crying, you know, because we just knew he was so well. So we trained him really well, unlike the Gold Cup, where I only trained three out of the five very well. So he'd had, he'd had a very unorthodox preparation, even by European standards, but particularly by American standards, where they are really not used to a massive layoff and then one prep run and then bang. Yes, but they don't have to race. Peter Farm to train on. Indeed not. If you show them the pictures to Peter Farm, it's just way above the facilities on an American dirt track. It's very hard to train a turf horse on an American dirt track. How could you be so confident that he was going to win? Oh, because he worked really well. We did interval training with him. He was spot on. 
and I had the three people who trained him really, it was Miguel who was his groom, mm -hmm. who, no. six weeks before, well first of all, he'd won the Breeders' Cup, then we were training him in South Carolina mm -hmm. and he bowed attendance, so he was off for a year, so we brought him back, and in June, and the uh, call up the owners and I said, I'm sorry, I need more time with him. Well, he'd already had 18 months and the owners were great. I said, I need more time. Just give me more time. I'll give him one race before the Breeders' Cup and we'll win the Breeders' Cup. So they weren't too pleased, <laughs> having not seen him for 18 months. I bet. Yes. So you were piling a fair bit of pressure on yourself. Yes. Adopting that campaign. Well, I was confident. Yeah. So, and then six weeks before, two vets came and said, He's not going to make the first race, let alone the second. You should retire him. Mm -hmm. And 99 times out of 100, they would have been right. But Miguel, who looked after him, came to me and said, don't worry, we'll get him there. And he had the magic hands and he, he, he worked really hard on him. He used to stand him in ice twice a day, but he did all sorts of other things. And John Boy rode him well, he always knew when he was right. John Boy says they're right, they're right. And Joan trained him as much as I did. And we were very confident. He was fit, he was sound, and he'd been better than he was the year before. So Gary Stevens got off him. So we saw Gary Stevens three days before, and all my staff went up to Gary. You've made a big mistake, Gary. You got off. So, because um, I booked Gary on January the 1st, February the 1st, March the 1st, the 1st of every month, I call him up. You will ride the horse in the Breeders' Cup at the end of the year, yeah, just to his agent. So I call up in October, said, Ron Anderson, his agent, mm -hmm. said, uh, you will ride my horse. No, we're not riding you. I said, well, I booked you. We're not riding you. We're riding Among Men for Michael Stout. Yeah. I said, Among Men? <laughs> You're not joking. <laughs> among Men? So I'll bet you $1,000 now. Um, wherever they finish, first and second or next to last, last and next to last, we'll finish in front of um, Among Men. So he took me on. But that was easy money. That was easy money. Now, before you went out that day in 98 to win the yes. second of your two Breeders' Cup miles, you had some worries about the turf course, didn't you? And it was, that, was that the day you, you famously wore a... Well, you can tell the story. No, that was at Woodbine. Actually. Woodbine. This was yes. 96 when he won yes, the first Woodbine. time. Right, so Joan went up early with the horse. And every night she phoned me, it's raining. It's mm. raining. I said, I don't want to hear that. Because he wanted so, fast ground. He wanted fast ground, yes. So anyhow, a, um, so I got there on the Wednesday. I said, well, let's walk the course. So I was with a pentrometer. John Boy had a stick and Joan was there. And we thought there was a, a dry patch. I said, well, we've got Gary Stevens riding for us. And he's, you know, won the Kentucky Derby three times. And I'm a farmer from Maryland. So why is he going to take any notice of us? So if we tell him something, we better make damn sure that it's right. Mm. So going back, I was dating a model when I was riding, and she came to Chepstow, but she had a cocktail dress and high heels on, which is not where you go to Chepstow in March. Anyhow, so bless her, she walked round with me with high heels, mm -hmm. and I said, I'm going to come up the left-hand side. Oh, she said, no, go up the right, my heels something a lot less. <laughs> so then I knew by accident the best way to test a racetrack is with a lady with high heels. So... Fast forward 20 years later, Joan's there, and I said, Joan, go and get some high heels. So she goes to the local shoe barn or whatever it was and gets some fairly cheap high bright red high heels. So she walked around with us. Anyhow, we found a, um, a dry, two dry patches. Patch. 
on there, but we walked around three times, so it was nine laps between us. So we found the dryer patch, so we went to Gary, I said, now this is, you know, if you do this, you will not win. But if you do this, you might win. This is one of the best systems of all time. And all the science <laughs> you've applied to the training of racehorses as well. So why did you move to America, Michael? Because uh, uh, Robert Sankster fired me. So I lost, I lost a job, it wasn't the end of the world, but I'd lost my reputation. And I wanted to, I could have gone back jumping, but I wanted mm -hmm. to prove myself on the flat. So uh, Dr. Lambert, who was uh, uh, an American vet with us, and he said, well, you've had a tough time, these horses... Is it David Lambert? David Lambert, yeah. yes. You've had a tough time um, with these horses that were very backward. And um, uh, so he said, come to America and I'll send you 12 horses. And you felt that your reputation was so sufficiently crushed by the time oh, of yes, Manson yes, yes. that we, you, could never, you couldn't have rescued no. yourself here? No, with 40 horses. And, we'd only, and I got fired in December, so it was after the yearling sales. So David took us to America. We loved America. And it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. You know, we've been really happy in America. We've been there 30 years. And um, do, you, yes. do, 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 you feel more, do you feel more accepted in America? Do you think there's a, a, a great openness to people who do things a bit differently or are... No, I think both sides of the Atlantic, they think I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> but do you think there's more place for a pain in the, in the backside there than there is here? No, it's, it's equal. People are the same in the world over. Most people are nice. You always get 1% or 2% who aren't so nice, but wherever you go. And so how quickly did you pick up the thread and get things rolling there? Our first winner won by 11 lengths. And then you were away? And then we were away, yes. No, we've enjoyed America. And tell me the story of the place over your shoulder, which is... Tapita Farm. Tapita Farm. Okay, so we'd been training at Fairhill on a dirt track and a wood chip track. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to build a Ballydoyle. As you know, I spent two summers with Vincent O'Brien. Yeah. So I always wanted to build a Ballydoyle. Um, so I knew if I was training on a farm, I had to have a really good surface, better than anyone else. So there it is. So it took me four years to come up with that. So um, how, did you, how did you create this surface? Um, well, it took me four years and 53 different samples, failed samples, before I got so did you lay 53 different gallops? No, no, just samples in boxes and right. what have you, yes. But how did you know that the horses would go well on that um, particular... You get a feel for it, yes, right. yes, yep. So there's the farm, it's 195 acres on the Chesapeake Bay, and it's halfway between Washington and New York, and it's a beautiful farm, and uh, we're very happy there. So but, Incredibly well positioned for all the all the race tracks, tracks on the Eastern yes. Seaboard. Yeah, there. no, it's great. And yes. what, what can you do there that you can't do elsewhere? Well, we've got hills, mm -hmm. we've got six turf tracks, two tapita tracks, and the big thing is we've got 50 acres of turnout. We love turning the fillies out, and they love going out. So you essentially are trying to apply what well, you would call European methods to exactly, American horse racing. Exactly. All it is is a copy of Ballydoyle. We had Before I bought the farm, I had Johnny Brabston, who was Vincent O'Brien's head man, to come and see the farm. I said, can I make this into Ballydoyle? And he said, yes. And he came the first three years, so he helped me build it. Johnny Brabson used to ride Nijinsky, mm -hmm. and um, he helped me with it all. He was, he, he was great. He had brilliant simplicity. He was a simple person, but he was brilliant. So I look at these pictures here, and I hear of your record, and I hear what you did with De Haas, and I'm sitting here thinking, why isn't Michael Dickinson trading a grade one winner every week in the United States nowadays? Why, why, that, surely that's what you should be doing. Well, when we, we didn't win any grade ones at Fairhill, but when we moved to the farm, mm -hmm. we won eight grade ones in eight years. So that was okay with 40 horses and mm -hmm. none of them too expensive, so that was okay. But then my wife wanted to take to Peter Footings round the world. 
And now we don't make to Peter, she makes to Peter 10, because she didn't think I did a good enough job. And she had 300 new samples, mm -hmm. and we've got 20, sorry, 10 improvements. So she told Peter 10, that's down at Newcastle. So she wanted to take to Peter around the world, and she wanted me to come with her. Right. So she'd helped me a lot in the training. And it was time to uh, repay her. Uh, repay her. And, and it was a good break, and I really enjoyed it, because I wanted to travel the world, and now I travel the world working. Right. Are you, so, are you back in the game then now? Are you back well, in the game of training big, big race winners? Are we going to see another chapter to the Michael Dickinson right, training well, just, story? Uh, no. I've just got 12 horses for 12 friends. George Strawbridge, yep. who you know, gentleman. He's got a few nice ones. Yes. Mrs. Brody, who is a big breeder from New York. Mm -hmm. And Chuck Pipke owns a diamond mine. He, he has got some nice ones. Yes. So I just train for them, and they're great. So I don't want lots of horses, but you say, you know, yeah, you can't take the country out of the, I uh, just, out of the man. I just love training horses, and it's just great to train 12. And there's, it, it's, not, it's not impossible, though, that you'll land on another nice one. Oh, exactly. I know we will do. We will do, yes. I mean, you could we be, only got you... 12. But l last year we only had nine winners and 12 horses, but we had five horses that had black type. So oh. five out of 12 to get black type was all right. I rest my case. Yeah, well, yes. Now, I, I said at the beginning of, uh, of when you came on in, in the introduction, I said that you had you'd sparked a revolution, in a sense, in, in, in how horses were raced, what surface horses were, were raced on. Now, the, the enjoyment that some people derive from racing horses on the dirt, I being one of them, is not something that you have shared. And we, we diverge on that significantly. We do, yes. For you... I can see you're enjoying this already. Yes. For you, why is it that you want US racing to revolutionise as regards which surface they race on? Well, it's not me, anyhow. So the, my sole reason for coming on was to tell you off. <laughs> I, I'm very happy to yeah. be told off. Very happy to be told <laughs> right. off. But I've so, enjoyed what, where we. I've enjoyed so, this so far. So viewers, boy wonder comes to America two years ago, a big conference in Saratoga. <laughs> Right, And he said, American lacks the confidence uh, to lead the racing world because they feel other countries don't like the medication of the facilities and the dirt. Well, all, this is all true. That's all true. But then Boy Wonder puts both feet right in it. Mm. And he said, I love dirt racing. It stretches the <laughs> equine athlete to the maximum, a reward for both class and courage. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. But all I'm racing... I'm still happy with this. Yes. All racing taxes the mind and intestinal fortitude of a horse. But dirt racing stretches, stretches the body mm -hmm. more than is necessary and very often beyond breaking point. Ra dirt racing can't survive without a shed load of medication and uh, too many fatalities. It can't survive. No, it can't or, survive. Or, or, that, or that culturally we've just moved to the point whereby in order to satisfy people's need for action, trainers have cut corners and therefore medicated the, uh, the well, horses. <laughs> and, and, also, and also that the surfaces for so long were not well enough maintained, so the incidence of injury was significantly greater and therefore trainers felt they had to medicate in order to, to, to counteract that. Well, it's a matter of public record that a famous trainer in America says so his horse received 17 injections the week of the race. That's I'm, right. I'm not disputing the, that there and the, is a... And, and the how did I start the speech? And the fatalities yeah. are twice what they are on turf and synthetic. But it's not... It's worse than but, that. But how, how much more dirt racing is there than turf or synthetic no, but in America? No, percentage. Percentage. All right, percentage-wise, OK. Right, OK. So, um, 
Fatalities yep. have gone down in the last 10 years in the United States, so with better management it's still, of the racetracks. It's still double by what it is on the other. But it's far worse than that. Only 30 tracks subscribe to the injury database. There are another 70 mm -hmm. that don't, and they don't for the single reason their fatalities are sky high. You've no idea how bad it is. Well, that, that, on that point, we absolutely agree. But my point is that I don't think it is dirt racing per se. I think it's the way that the horses are being trained, particularly at the lower level, and a lack of regulation, a lack of rigorous regulation amongst a lot of the smaller race courses in the United States, and a lack of harmonization between the racing jurisdictions to get their house in order. So if there is not a clear uh, policy of what you can give horses across all the states in the United States, then there is going to be a lack of confidence in being able to take the sport forward. As a spectacle, dirt racing is a more exciting spectacle than racing on the, on the synthetic Did you see the, the Kentucky Derby last year? That's my view. When the trainer said... It's like heavyweight boxing. Told the jockey, he said, unless you're in the first two around the first turn, forget it. There was 20 runners. The kickback was horrific. You want to try and blow the dirt it, out of a horse's eye after was, a race. But it was, it was ever thus. It was, it was ever awful. thus. awful. You either like it as an aesthetic spectacle well, or you don't. There are two things the public don't like. Mm -hmm. Fatalities and medication. Agreed. And, and um, dark racing can't survive without... But, it, but if the tracks are better maintained, if there's more harmonisation okay. in the rules... All right. Well, when Boy Wonder himself came to Saratoga, mm. right, there'd just been 14 horses vanned off in 15 races training. Now, you didn't get the memo, but everybody else knew. right? In, now, Saratoga, A, has... The best track superintendent in America. They have a huge budget, good weather, the best horses and oh, trainers. Hang on a minute. No, there can be, it can be very inconsistent the, weather. You can get a sloppy track one day, fast yes, track but the next this, day. At this time, when there were 14 fatalities, 14 horses vanned off in 15 days training, uh, the weather was good. They have a good track super. But that's the trouble with dirt. It's like an IED. It can blow up in your face without you knowing it. So, what's the solution? Are you suggesting all dirt racing No, well, disappears? Any, it's already... So, where are those statistics? Have you got the statistics for two? Which one would you like first? The 5% or the 17%? I'm sure we have. Let's, let's have a look Put at those graphs. There we have. Right. So in 1991, yep. the turf races in America. There were 5% of all uh, races. Right. And now the 17. And last year, with a filter, they just filtered out all the claiming races. 48% yep. of the best races in America are on the turf. Uh, the trainers are already voting for it. But I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing that you have more turf races in the USA. It's a good thing because it increases gl the global sport. Yes, it that's great. It increases well, we interest in all the other countries. But, we like that. But I st I, all I'm saying is I believe there is a, still a place for top-class dirt racing in the USA. Well, go and put up, Frank, get, the racing secretaries can't fill races on the dirt. That's the problem. The trainers are already... The revolution's on. Well, then that will be a process of natural selection, won't it? It may well be that in 10, 20 years' time, all races in the US are run on turf. But as things stand, if you're asking me what I, I enjoy watching, for better or worse, I do enjoy you, watching top-class races. You can't love horses when they're, when they're dying. You can't love racing and say they're dying and they're full of drugs. The public don't like that. Well, that's that. ridiculous. That's like saying you can't enjoy national hunt racing because horses die. You can't enjoy the sport of horse racing because horses die. Nobody wants horses to die. And it, it absolutely 
in the um, in the grasp of all the authorities, and some do it better than the others, to, to make sure that horses are as well looked after as they can within the parameters of what they're being asked to do. We are asking animals to do something for our pleasure. That is the fundamental basis of our sport. And within that, sometimes you will get serious injury and fatality. It's a question of whether we ask them a reasonable level of risk. You're saying, and I agree with you in part, that on the dirt we don't ask them a reasonable level of risk because and I would suggest that at the top level I'm satisfied with it but further down uh, the scale particularly in America it is not sufficiently well regulated and the tracks are not sufficiently well maintained to take that element of risk now still if you look at the statistics on the website of the American Jockey Club um, fatalities have fallen year on year over 10 yes, years but those aren't real statistics they're only 30 percent of the 30 those, out of the 100 but those horses. are the 30 best tracks that, that is where the yes, sport but what is about being the shaken. other 70 when the that is clearly a massive problem I'm I, agreeing with you yes there. But, that, but I don't think the answer to it is to abolish it. I think the answer to it is to make it better. We've had it for 100 years. We've tried hard. You go around all the track. All the time, the track supers, suddenly there's a rash of injuries. They fire the track super. They get the next guy in. He changes the cushion. It's all right for a bit. And then it blows up again in his face. And they, this, they try really hard. This is, the, this is the, the absolute foundation and lifeblood of your sport. The Kentucky Derby is your most famous horse race. It is one of the world's most famous horse races. It, it is the second most watched sporting event in the United States behind the Super Bowl. It is the absolute marrow of your sport. And, and, and what are you without the, the Derby and the Triple Crown and the Breeders' Cup Classic and all the great races run on dirt? Well, we still have lots of good turf races. But we've got to look after the horses better. I agree. I bet on that, we they, agree completely. The bit about when you came in Saratoga and did your bit was upsetting to me because you have a well-deserved reputation for being an excellent pre presenter and you're very intelligent. And most of what you say is worthy of attention. So I was just disappointed that somebody as smart as you was standing up for dirt racing. <laughs> now you're trying to flatter me. No. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, and I will cont I'll continue to stand up for it. But I think we, we are essentially speaking the same language as regards our, our attitude to equine welfare and the, and the importance of looking after these horses, of not taking shortcuts by pumping them full of whatever you want to pump them full of. And that's, that was, what was the first, only one of us wrote this speech, and it was Michael. Um, what, um, what, what was my first line again about, uh, you've got it written the down. The USA lacked the confidence to lead the world in racing because they feel other countries don't like the medication, the facilities, and the dirt. And am I wrong? That's a no, pretty no, good start, right. wasn't No, that's it? right, yes. But then you said, put both feet right in it, oh, I love dirt racing. But it's about but having the confidence medication. in the product. You love medication, it, you love fatalities. No, I don't love medication or fatalities, okay. that's All obvious. Right. Um, but then, you know, you've, you've, you know that in order to train horses successfully in the, that you, you've used medication. Yes, but... Yeah. I don't I love don't, medication. Yeah, but I don't use a lot. Yeah, but you can, you can train a horse. Say a horse like De Hoss, for example, you nursed him back to full health uh, to get him back for a brilliant training performance. Now, you couldn't, you couldn't have done that without the assistance of medication along the way. Medication is not always a bad no. thing. It's the irresponsible and injudicious use of medication that gives the whole sport a bad name when there are plenty of people who are using medicines perfectly legitimately and perfectly legally and perfectly properly, like any athlete. Same with athletes. You've got 100-meter runners will be seen by doctors all the time and be getting medication that is perfectly legal. Cyclists, the same. But it's the people who then try and get 
fail to see where the line is between getting an edge and getting an unfair edge, and that then... De Hoss didn't win the Breeders' Cup for a medication. I'm not saying he, he did. He won it because he had brilliant surfaces, he had mm. hills to train on, mm -hmm. he had a brilliant man looking after him who massaged the legs and did all sorts of other things. But you needed the signs and a along the way. And a jockey, a uh, rider, exercise rider, who could get his work to within a fifth of a second. Did he run on Lasix? He ran on Lasix, yes. And did he run on, did he run, was he allowed to run on Buttes? I presume he was, because it was... 1998. So you're telling me that your greatest training performance of all time came with a horse that was running on Butte and running on Lasix, and then you're saying to me that I have a, 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 a cultural problem yeah, with, but I did, with the use of medication. I mean, it's absurd. He didn't have 17 injections. Well, does it matter whether you've had yeah. this many, that many, or the other many? Well, you, ran, you ran your horse on Butte and Lasix and won, and it was your greatest training performance. I have no problem with that. Well, you have to run on Lasix because everybody else is running on Lasix. I wish we didn't run on Lasix. Well, you can make a stand and not run on it. No, because it, but if you were that it, principle, moves, you four, it moves you up four lengths. But yeah, but I can't if throw you the were, race away. But if you were that principle, oh. then that's, that, if you w really want to change the world, you, you're I, principled enough to have given up a brilliant training career to try and revolutionise the way horses are trained on different surfaces around the world. You are principled enough to do that, and you are brilliant enough to do that, but you're not principled enough to say, right, well, I won't run my horse on Lasix then. Well... Lasix moves a horse up typically four lengths. Mm -hmm. Now, I wouldn't be here today if De Hoss had finished second, and you, you wouldn't be having me in because I didn't win the Breeders' Cup because I didn't give my horse Lasix. It moves horses up. Simple as that. And the beauty had was uh, 48 hours out. Mm -hmm. There was a tiny, uh, very little in the system in 48 hours. It's gone in 24. Mm -hmm. So he did run on some medication, but not 17. Are we digressing somewhat from yes. the initial point? Yes. So where's the end game? You feel then that... Well, the, 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 it's already coming to an end. Trainers are voting against dirt, mm -hmm. and they're running to... You see, where's Martin Panzer's quote, the racing secretary? Is Martin Panzer, racing secretary of the New York Racing Association? Yes, we'll put him up in I a minute. We have, I've got it here somewhere as well. If yes. we write a New York maiden on the dirt, we may only get two entries and the same race on the turf, there could be yes. 18. The revolution's already taken place. So do you think then we could reach a situation whereby turf racing becomes a dominant uh, force yes. in the United yes. States and yes. dirt racing becomes a more... Uh, yes. Maybe that might be a better way round. Maybe it. it might be a better way round. Maybe those great well, dirt races may still exist. Well, the, the dirt races, the top races, will, will still have the triple mm. crown. And some of those down the lower end, where there are more welfare problems, may self-selectively disappear. Yes, maybe. But, of course, the crucial thing, Michael, is we, want, we have to get people to continue to bet on the sport. Well, the, the betters love turf racing. Well, if the betters love turf oh, racing, then love, that again will well, self-select. That's, that's the next problem, because the betters love that. So the accountant for the racetrack tells the racing secretary, oh, the betters love, mm. we want more turf racing. Mm. Now, that's the problem we're and having And the handle now. was up last year in the United States. So yes, that's but, they're, but they're having more uh, turf races, but they're beating up the turf tracks now. Typically, a turf track would have 120 races a year on it, and that's mm -hmm. what they can handle. And then again, you've, you've walked then, into the same welfare problem. Too much racing. Does it matter what the surface is? If yes. you abuse the surface and keep bashing it and bashing it and bashing it and bashing it, then you run into the welfare problem, whether it's, whether it's uh, dirt racing, turf racing, or indeed, dare I say, it's synthetic racing. If you abuse a synthetic surface, you make an unsafe surface for the horse. Yes, well, they are, um, they are uh, abusing some of the turf tracks. By the end of the meet, they're getting beat up. Uh, uh, beat up? A bit like um, I'm feeling right now, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed that.
Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai.